0: Starliner, take two, and measuring the pulse of a planet. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Boeing's Starliner is set to launch on an uncrewed mission from Cape Canaveral to the International Space Station later this week on a critical test mission to certify the vehicle to fly astronauts. It's a redo of a previous test attempt in late 2019 that failed to reach the space station. We'll speak with Michelle Parker, Boeing's Space and Launch Chief Engineer, about the mission and what the team learned from the previous attempt. Then, a robot on Mars is measuring the pulse of the planet. NASA's InSight mission is listening to seismic activity, and its findings are shedding some light on what's happening below the surface of Mars. We'll speak with space journalist and We Martian's podcast host, Jake Robbins, about the findings and what's below the rust-colored surface of Mars. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Boeing Starliner mission is designed to take astronauts to the International Space Station, launching from Cape Canaveral here in Florida. But before it could do that, the Starliner is going on an uncrewed mission first, collecting data from the spacecraft so NASA can certify the vehicle for human spaceflight. The Launch Friday is a redo of a previous attempt to dock the Starliner with the station that ended early, due in part to a software issue. To talk more about the mission called OFT2, we're joined by Michelle Parker, Boeing's Space and Launch Division's Chief Engineer. Michelle, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here today.
0: So, Michelle, OFT2 is a test mission to the ISS. In back. walk me through the goals of this mission. What are you going to be looking for?
1: this is our orbital flight test so this is an unmanned uh, flight test of our starliner vehicle we're scheduled to launch on friday so we're really excited uh, this week as we're leading up to the launch uh, there's been a lot of activity that preps us for the launch um starting you know back a couple weeks ago when the vehicle left the factory and was moved over to united launch alliances vehicle integration facility um, where it was placed on top of the rocket so that's where it's sitting right now getting ready for its launch friday um, we've had a uh, NASA flight readiness review last week. Uh, that includes NASA, Boeing, United Launch Alliance, as well as the International Space Station, all the international partners. So That's a big event for us to get through and all pulled go for launch at that meeting. And then this week we'll be looking as we lead into Friday's launch, uh, we'll be looking this week on wednesday the rocket with the starliner vehicle on top of it will roll out from the vehicle integration facility to the launch pad and then uh, like i said we're scheduled to launch friday afternoon but the real countdown starts uh, over 24 hours before that with our teams coming in getting uh, in their positions getting on on station on console um, and they'll start to check out both the rocket and the starliner uh, vehicle, making mm-hmm. sure that all systems are operating as we expect them to, and uh, and that will proceed through the day until we launch 2:53 um, p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, and then once we launch, the the Atlas V rocket will take us up out of the atmosphere. We'll separate from the rocket, uh, then the Starliner itself uh, does some what we call orbital insertion burns, getting us up to a. Altitude, where we can rendezvous with the International Space Station. Uh, and then about 24 hours after we launch, we will be uh, uh, approaching and docking with the International Space Station. So that'll be very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll stay there on the International Space Station for a couple days, and then we will depart. We will undock. We'll depart, and then we'll come back in through the atmosphere, uh, which we call re-entry, and do the descent, and we will land in New Mexico. So mm-hmm. all phases of that of the mission are, are what we're looking at to demonstrate um, through our orbital flight test, just to demonstrate the, the complete operation of the Starliner vehicle.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of testing has happened here on the ground, and, and from your, your previous um, OFT-1 uh, mission. Uh, what specifically are you going to be looking for um, for this mission that you'll Bring back to NASA and you know present that data to certify the flight for uh, humans. What are some of the high level things you're going to be keeping an eye on?
1: Yeah, so we will look at um, ensuring that the that the Starliner can um, get itself to the rendezvous orbit with the International Space Station. So um, and then again to accomplish the docking and the the landing and what we do after the. So we are checking all along the way very systematically as we work our way through the mission. Uh, we have different demonstrations that we need to do. We need to make sure that all of our sensors are working. Um, we need to make sure our communications with the International Space Station are working. Uh, and so the way we do that during the mission is we have different checkpoints, uh, different test demonstrations, um, and then you know different go and no-go points um, where we review all of that data real time make sure that everything's working as we expect it to, and then give the go to proceed on to the next step. Um, and that's essentially how the mission will progress with the demonstrations, review, systematic review of the data, um, and, uh, and a consent to proceed to the next step. Um, once the vehicle comes back to Earth, we will also spend time pouring over all of the detailed data that we've uh, gathered during the entire flight test. Um, so we'll look at both the, the data that we've uh, uh, accumulated during all of the operations um, to ensure everything is uh, operated as we expected it to, and we'll also bring the vehicle back from uh, from New Mexico back to the factory here in Florida uh, and do a physical inspection, ensure that all of the hardware um, made it you know, safely through the flight. Um, we'll we will. Um, uh, note any lessons learned, any updates that we need to make, and then we'll prepare for our crewed flight test, which is the second milestone, second test milestone on our path to certification. Um, and that test is that test flight is scheduled um, towards the end of this year, no earlier than the, the end of this year. But again, we'll be looking at the data from the orbital flight test um, very, very closely. Make sure we're ready to go, and we'll let that data guide us towards the crewed flight test mission.
0: Mm-hmm. This is a, a redo of a mission that, that wasn't able to reach the, the space station back in December of 2019. What have you and your team learned from OFT1 uh, that you've put into this mission? Uh, and, and are you optimistic um, that this mission will be a success?
1: Yes, I think you said it well. It was This is a reflight of our OFT1 mission from 2019. Um, and we did learn a lot. That was our very first flight of the Starliner vehicle. We did have lessons learned coming out of that flight, um, and you know, most notably is is our uh, was in the software area. Um, and we have done a lot of work within our software area, not just uh, correcting the um, specific lines of code that gave us an issue, but really looking at the overall um, software testing um, and software review. Um, uh, an approach to our to our software testing um, and so we spent a lot of time again correcting the the code that did give us a problem but also a lot of time testing reviewing doing a detailed review of all the code not just that which gave us the, the um, a problem but all of the code to make sure um, we didn't see anything else there um, and then um, you know most notably we've uh, we've done a lot of testing on the software um, with probably the, the culmination of all of that software testing being uh, an end-to-end mission simulation uh, that we've completed um, about a month or so ago, where we really ran uh, a full end-to-end five-day mission, you know, starting at our um, day before launch countdown, um, all the way through the launch, the docking, and and the landing, um, continuously. Uh, To ensure that everything was operating as we expect it to. And we had done, we had tested all parts of the mission previously, um, but we had done it in phases. So this was, you know, the continuous run of the mission for the five, uh, five straight days. And we had, um, you know, not just our teams there in the positions that they will be during launch. Um, We had NASA participation. We had astronaut participation. um, And we really, you know, it was really exciting. We really ran that like a, a true, um, mission rehearsal mm-hmm. um, so that that's probably the most notable um, change that we've their lesson learned that we've had um, we also made some updates in the communication system so on oft1 um you know the there are times that the spacecraft uh that needs to be commanded from the ground and when what we saw during OFT one was some interference from uh from the earth actually if we were pointed towards the earth uh and so we've you know we've added some filtering um, we've we've uh, fine-tuned the, the antenna pointing from the vehicle so we can ensure that we get a nice, clean communication signal up to the vehicle. And then we've had some changes uh, that, were, that were planned and uh, just part of normal course as we head towards our crewed flight test uh, where we will have astronauts on board. So we've got the addition of a, an entry cover that will protect some of our equipment as we come back in through the atmosphere. And then we've done some updates to displays um, and things inside the capsule, which the astronauts will use for a crewed flight test. So those are some of the normal upgrades that we had planned and just working to get the vehicle, um, you know, closer and closer to the configuration of the crewed flight test.
0: Mm -hmm. And presumably, if all goes well on OFT2, a a crewed test flight is next, as you mentioned uh, will it will it follow the similar schedule, um, you know, just a week up on station and then back? And, and tell me about the crew that's uh, prepping for that mission.
1: Yes, we have uh, the astronauts are already prepping for that mission. And, and like I said, they've been a part of, our, um, of all of our mission rehearsals. They were a part of our, um, our end-to-end mission simulation that we just did. Um, that gives us a lot of confidence for both the OFT2 mm-hmm. flight as well as their crewed flight test. Um, they've been with us every step of the way um, we also have chris ferguson astronaut chris ferguson who is a part of our boeing team um, he will he will not be on the flight this time but he is, has been there every step of the way to, to help us with the design and the testing and the and the preparation um the you know the crew that will fly uh the three astronauts um, they you know they work with us very closely in fact they were out on the launch pad um or out in the vehicle Uh, just recently in the capsule taking a look um, because they're getting ready for their flight as well. Mm. So that's really exciting. Um, The the mission itself for a crewed flight test will be similar to OFT. Uh, The the launch will be similar. The the, the rendezvous and docking with station will all be um, on the same timeline. Um, The time that we'll spend at station will depend. We can spend from anywhere from a couple days, you know, up to a couple months. Um, so that's you know we'll we'll plan that out as we get closer. It depends on the traffic at the international Space Station um, and uh, you know and how all of that lays out. Uh, and then you know same we will undock and we'll land again and then um, just like we did for oft two or we will do for oft two, we'll be taking time to review all of that data that we've gathered, take a look at the harbor on the vehicle, make sure that was all. Um, uh, safely returned, um, safely made it through the mission. And then um, we will be moving towards our certification and then our regular in-service flights uh, next year to the station. We've
0: been speaking with Michelle Parker. She's the chief engineer of Boeing's Space and Launch Division. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Still to come, measuring the pulse of a planet and uncovering its warm, gooey center. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. A robot on Mars is measuring the pulse of the planet. NASA's InSight mission is listening to seismic activity, and its findings are shedding some light on what's happening below the surface of Mars. To talk more about the mission and the scientific findings from the data, we're joined by Jake Robbins. He's a space journalist and hosts the podcast We Martians. Jake, welcome back.
2: I'm always excited to be on your show, Brendan.
0: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Insight. There's some really cool findings from um, that were published uh, recently. But let's take a step back. Um, remind us what is Insight and what is it searching for?
2: Yeah. So Insight is a lander mission from NASA. It's landed on the surface of Mars. It went back there November 2018. I think was the landing uh, time there. So it's been on the surface for a couple of years now. And the 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 purpose of this mission is to try and understand the interior structure of Mars. So we have a lot of missions that look at the surface. There's orbiters that are taking pictures from orbit. You've got rovers that are driving around, taking pictures, you know, cracking open rocks and looking inside, but those are all kind of surface missions. And we don't have a lot of data talking about the inside of the planet. How big is the crust? How big is the mantle? How big is the core? Um, You know, what's the density of these things? What's the composition of these things? All these different questions about what's inside this planet. And that's what Insight is designed to do. So it's a little bit different than the other missions. So it's landed on the surface. It has this very, very sensitive, high precision, fancy seismometer instrument that it is placed onto the surface in front of it, it's protecting it with this windshield and this temperature protector. And it's, you know, trying to make this seismometer as quiet and and safe as it can be. And it's just been listening for two and a half years for quakes, And it uses that data to try and understand what's happening. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting, different kind of mission that I'm very excited about, even though it doesn't always make the headlines the way some of the rovers do. So tell me a little bit about what it it has heard,
0: um, and how scientists are interpreting that data.
2: Yeah. So over the last two and a half years, it's, it's turned out that Mars is maybe a little bit quieter than we expected it to be. Um, but there are Mars quakes that are happening and a lot of them are coming from the same area on Mars. There's this place called Cerberus Fossae, and it's got these kind of long stretch marks on, on the crust that are kind of cracking apart. And we're getting a little bit of, uh, of Mars quakes that come from there. They're not big like earthquakes, like a, the headline earthquakes that you have on earth. It might hit, you know, magnitude seven, eight, nine. These are more in the three, four range. So they're, there you'd probably feel them if you were standing right above them but you know on the other side of the planet where insight's listening you wouldn't feel it at all so it's kind of quiet but it's been piecing together all these these uh these marsquakes and putting together this giant data set of seismicity and what you can do with that is when these these quakes happen and the waves propagate through the planet they're going to bounce off the different layers inside and you can kind of piece together the timing and where they bounce and how they reach the seismometer to create a model of the inside of the planet. And that's kind of what they've been doing uh, this whole time. And that's makes this week so exciting because these, these papers are basically the result of the main mission uh, or the main objective this mission was set out to do. So it's, it's a super exciting week from a science perspective.
0: So InSight itself is stationary. Its microphone is stationary, right? And it's listening to things happening all across the planet.
2: Is that right? That's, that's right, yeah. So just like on Earth, these Mars quakes, they kind of shake on the ground, and then these waves of, of seismicity emanate out from there, and they cover the whole planet, and then they bounce off the other side and then go back again. They, they hit the core. They hit the mantle. They bounce up and down. So you can kind of—the whole planet kind of rings every time this happens— it's very, very slight, but that's why you have to have this very fancy seismometer. And and I, I I cannot overstate how precise this instrument is. They can literally measure the width of a hydrogen atom. So if you had this seismometer sitting on the ground and you slid one hydrogen atom underneath it, it would notice that difference. That's how precise this is. You know, I think in some of the uh, tests that they were doing, for the instrument before it flew, they had it in Colorado and they were listening to it to see what it could hear and they could hear the waves crashing against the floor, uh, against the beach in in California, for example. Like that's how how uh, precise and, and sensitive this instrument is.
0: That's absolutely cool. <laughs> that's so, <laughs> so neat. So, so tell me a little bit about what, what we're learning in, in these papers. I think there's what, three papers that came out this week?
2: That's right, yeah. They had one for uh, the crust, one for the mantle, and one for the core. And I think the the biggest finding is probably that the core ended up being a lot larger than we expected it to be. So I think some of the estimates going in were a core radius of around 1500 to 1600 kilometers um, to, you know, make the, we know how much Mars weighs and how much the mass of it is, and we know how big it is. And so you can kind of get an idea, well, if it's going to be this density, it's probably about this big a core, but it ended up being about 1830 kilometers if I have my numbers right. So 200 kilometers bigger of a radius than we expected. And that's kind of a, a surprising result that has some implications about the density, because the mass didn't change. And so if the core is bigger, we know it's got to have lighter stuff inside of it. And so now the all the, the geophysicists and the seismologists have to take this new result and pass it off to some other scientists, you know, the, the chemists and stuff and say, now you got to figure out what's what this is made out of, because it's a lot bigger than we thought it would be. So it's kind of a fun way the science, you know, propagates to different uh, disciplines. Uh, we know that the crust itself has got these different layers in it. That's kind of a neat result. Um, on Earth, we don't actually see this kind of differentiation the same way. So we've got sort of three layers on the, the Mars crust that have different, um, you know, compositions and densities. That's pretty interesting. And then it has this, this mantle area, which is very kind of different as well. They've got this this thick part called the lithosphere that, uh, on earth is very turbulent and it's got all these kind of, uh, currents that move tectonic plates around on earth. That's why we have mountains and earthquakes and, and all these kinds of things. Mars is one big plate though. It doesn't have tectonic plates the way earth is. So it's one giant, you know, crust that goes all the way around and it doesn't move. And this, this lithosphere sort of contributes to that. So it's a, it's a similar planet in many ways to earth. It's got the same core mantle crust pattern, but there's a lot of really unique things about Mars that, uh, uh, are going to now cascade into a whole bunch of different science questions in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. This may be a, a silly question, but if there's no tectonic activity, what
2: is it actually hearing when there's those Mars quakes? That's a great question, yeah. So there's still there's still uh, uh, Mars quakes because tectonics aren't the only thing that cause earthquakes or marsquakes in this case Um, what we see a lot here is we have um, tidal forces so the sun and the moons are kind of pulling the planet you know squeezing it in and out and you can get different cracks and stuff that happen there Uh, it's also cooling and so as the planet gets colder you know all planets are sort of cooling in the long run um, that crust will have to kind of condense or shrink along with it and that can cause different fractures and cracks along the way so it's it's that's why the, the marsquakes are smaller we don't have the same sort of tectonic activity like you would California or whatever um, but uh, we do still have activity that you can hear
0: now is this the first time scientists are actually getting a look at the seismic activity of, of this planet
2: it, uh, it's not exactly the very first time, but it's the, the most useful time. So there was a seismometer on the old Viking landers It landed uh, in the late seventies and early eighties that they were operating. Um, but they had some problems with that seismometer because they, they had it on the deck of the lander. So if you imagine the shape of a lander, you have this kind of spacecraft, that's on legs, it's sitting on the surface. And the Viking one had the seismometer on top of the deck. And what they ended up Hearing is as they were listening to the planet, they were also getting all this noise because the wind was shaking the spacecraft, the solar uh, not solar panels, but the the different antennas and stuff were catching the wind and that kind of thing and so it was really difficult to extract out from the noise what the actual data was, and the instrument ended up being not as productive as they hoped. That's why the insight went the different approach. They took it off the deck, they have this arm on the the lander, they put it, you know, a a couple meters as much as the arm can reach away from the lander, and they shield it. Uh, And the data has been a lot more uh, valuable because of that.
0: Uh, I read a tweet that described these findings as it may have a cool... And brittle surface, but Mars has a very warm and gooey center. And I thought that was a very interesting way to describe a planet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what, what does that mean for, you know, understanding of planetary sciences? Like, how is this going to help, you know, the greater knowledge of planetary formation in our solar system, and, and maybe how our, our own planet
2: formed? yeah well the biggest thing is that it's another uh data point in our study of planets and so you know before insight had its results we knew what the inside of earth looked like and that was it we all the other planets we don't really have the same sort of um you know look perspective inside of it it would be like picking one person off the planet and looking at them and saying this is what all people look like it's not true it gives you important information you know i know that you have a beard. That tells me a little bit about you, but that doesn't mean that every person has a beard. And so now we have another data point to give us, uh, to help us kind of understand what's the same between these planets and what's different. And we can extract that to all the planets. And then the other thing that I would say is it allows us to ground truth a little bit. So if we have say some spacecraft that are in orbit of Mars and they are doing some sort of circumspect measurement of what the inside of the planet would be. Maybe they can see how it kind of wobbles on its axis or spins. We can observe that in another way. And now we can match that measurement to an actual reading of the inside and we know how they relate. And that means that we can go to another planet and measure the wobble there, and probably have a good idea of how we can translate that measurement into an inside. So it's, it's this kind of, you know, roundabout way that you can use this one piece of data to learn more about lots of different planets. And that's going to be really important, especially if we go look at things like exoplanets, which we will not have a seismometer on anytime soon. (laughs) So um, it's, it's a really important way to sort of flesh out our understanding of all planets rather than just one
0: mm-hmm and uh, is this the last of the papers coming from this i mean is is insight continuing to listen to the you
2: know the the pulse of the planet? Can we expect more findings soon I hope so yeah um the the instrument is still operating in, insight is is it's past its prime mission so it was designed to kind of operate uh in in uh, uh one Mars year that was kind of the the objective they had with it but uh, it's still operating past that, which is great. It's having some trouble with power. There's a lot of dust accumulating on the solar panel. So as it's aging, uh, that power level is kind of going down and they've had to play with the instruments a little bit to see where they can save power here, save power there. They're trying some wacky stuff where they're clearing dust off the panels by dumping dirt on it with a little scoop, which is a lot of fun to watch uh, as the images come down but it is still operating today. And they hope that they'd be able to go through the rest of this year and maybe into next year. And that's really important because it's adding to that data set. So the data is going to get more robust. You'll be able to do more with it, be more confident with it. But this is also a really important time because this is sort of the, you're going into a quieter period on Mars where there's less wind. Um, and it's, it's, you can have less interference with the data. So, um, you're going to have, better quality data, I guess, in this this one time period. And then I've just in, in any kind of seismological perspective, you're always kind of just waiting for the big one. They haven't had a big Mars quake uh, in the, the two years that they've been operating yet. But maybe that'll happen this year. And then, you know, we'll still be on to hear it, which is great.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Insight's not the only robot exploring Mars. Um, NASA has Uh, Perseverance and and the little helicopter that we've all fallen dearly in love with, uh, Ingenuity. (laughs) Uh, Jake, I'm wondering if you could quickly give us an update on uh, what's happening with those missions.
2: Yeah, so it's a very exciting time for the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, The rover itself is now in the middle of its very first sample acquisition campaign. So the whole point of this rover was to go to jezero crater and you know extract these samples of rocks into these special little tubes where they're going to store them safely they're like hermetically sealed and another mission is going to come later pick those up and bring them back here where we can study them in high-tech labs for the next you know 50 60 100 years whatever it's going to be so it's very exciting that we're going to get these samples back so the very first sample to be collected is they're doing that right now. They're sort of in this very special spot near uh, a region called Seta, which is like this kind of sandy area. They're going to get some rocks right right up against the edge of it there. And then Ingenuity is uh, still flying strong. So this mission has sort of surprised us. Uh, it was supposed to do kind of a, a very short um, you know, four week period, like a 30 day period where it was going to be doing some test demonstrations just to see if the helicopter worked. Uh, and it did, and it works really well. And they've been able to move into this, uh, what they're calling an operations demonstration phase. So, uh, they're not just testing the helicopter anymore. They're testing how it can be useful and it's flying along with the Rover. It's doing some scouting for it, taking a picture of, of terrain that it can't drive over. It's scouting ahead. So it's giving it some context of where you want to go. Okay. Now we know, you know on the other side of this 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 uh feature we can't drive through we know there's some ridges we want to look at and so they're getting all this really valuable data and what I'm hearing is that the, the scientists are really starting to get their stride with. It. They're really finding out that having this little drone, this little scout that comes along with the rover is very useful. And they're really excited about uh, getting this information to help them plan the rover and get the best out of it.
0: We've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He hosts and produces the podcast We Martians. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts for more information at wemartians.com. Jake, thank you
2: so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Brendan. Thank you.
0: Well, it's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more space news, including our coverage of the Starliner launch, be sure to visit our website, wmfe.org slash space. Are We There Yet? It is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty and LaToya Dennis. LaToya, welcome. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.